0: Hi, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors here and your host of the Geared for Growth Property Investing podcast. Today, we're chatting with Richard Evans, who's a buyer's agent and from Fortune Property Finder. He's the founder of that property business. Today's a little bit of a Newcastle-centric episode. Newcastle's been a property investment hotspot in the media quite a bit in the last little while. And Richard gives us a bit of a lay of the land as to all the different pockets around Newcastle and an idea about where the hotspots are and what investors need to look for if they're looking to pay purchase in Newcastle to expand or even begin their investment property portfolio. He gives us some really great tips as to some of the secret sauce behind buyers agents and how they can negotiate for their clients and get better deals, how they work at auction with things like auction markers, and he gives us a nice little tip about vacancy rates and how that may predict the movement of property growth prices. Without further ado, here's Richard. Richard Evans, thank you for joining me on GID for Growth. It's absolutely my pleasure, Mike.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Now, Richard, for anyone that maybe isn't aware of you, could you let us know who you are and what you specialise in? Absolutely. So I'm an independent
1: real estate buyer's agent based in Newcastle, and we specialise in residential uh, investor or owner-occupied purchasing property for clients
0: beautiful then you're a perfect fit for the podcast and uh, we're going to ask you a lot of questions and get some good insights into how investors can grow their portfolios of course but background on richard evans what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up oh
1: i don't know if i should admit this one but it was the 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 the, the iconic tennis lady was a was a poster i had on my wall i don't think i had
0: you're talking about the uh, the risque tennis lady. I am. I am.
1: I've never knew <laughs> much about her, who she was, but she was on my wall, and it was it was beautiful lighting, and she, she was there for a long time. But I didn't have many others, I must say.
0: <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a naughty, naughty man, Richard.
1: <laughs> I don't know where the paper. I think we we're on holiday, and somebody purchased for me. Or oh, I may have bought it as a young teenager or something, and she went on my wall and stayed there for a long, long time.
0: She was on a lot of walls from memory. Yeah, um, no, what about? What about property? How did you get started and what was your first investment?
1: Yeah, uh, good, good question. My first investment I, I purchased in Western Australia in, in Perth in a suburb called Lathlain. Lane. Uh, my, and it was back in the, in the, in the mid-90s. Um, I chose that suburb because it was what was affordable within four kilometres of the centre of the city. That was my, my theory of the time, that if I could get as close into the centre of the city that would be a good area for growth and what was affordable, and what I thought were areas that had, you know, were looking for growth, shouldering off other areas that had performed. And really yep. what I could afford, honestly, you know, as close in as I could and afford to buy a, a home on a you know, the larger block that I could. So that's what I did.
0: And why Perth?
1: Um, I lived in Perth. That was yeah, that's where go. I was living. Yeah. It actually yep, started off way. as an owner occupier, that home, I must say, and then, then, then became an investment property. So it went in there, did some work to it, and then rented it out.
0: Yeah, beautiful. And did you sort of think about the investing process as you were buying that property? Were you buying it sort of thinking, I want this to go up in value and grow my portfolio? Or was it once it sort of turned into an investment property that you started to think like, this is where we can maybe grow a portfolio?
1: It was always intended to be, to be that a vehicle for, for, for growing some wealth and, you know, and a portfolio. Um, we went in, as I say, the the criteria of purchasing it, although it was convenient for work, I, I, it was also it was going to be convenient for other people. So, you know, the intention of uh, selling it in the future or whatever we wanted to do with it as our, you know, we assess things and, and change our plans or whatever we may do. So, but I, I was purchased with the sense that it would be an investment property that would perform and also have appeal to renters and purchasers in the future.
0: Yep. let's go back a little bit in time to the uh, little uh, rapscallion Richard Evans with the tennis lady on the wall. What did you um, What yeah. did you want to be in school? And and can you tell us about your early professional life? Sort of a, of a bit of a chronological journey through to today.
1: Yeah, sure. So my my very young days in school, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, right. Don't ask me why. Just thought it'd be interesting. History was very interesting to me, and you know the idea of uncovering ancient things and parts of history for reading history and you know uh, historical fiction was was a, a favorite genre of mine uh to yeah to be able to uncover the past I thought would be fantastic but uh, that sort of went by the wayside and I, I I was itching to leave school and get out into the workforce which I which I did um and a, an interest of mine was horticulture landscape horticulture the language of plants and the understanding of the natural world so I got into landscape horticulture design. Not not my first not my first thing, but that's what I studied. Um, yep. Not my first job is what I'm saying. But I, I, I studied that, and ultimately uh, that took me in other directions over time. But uh, yeah, I started off in in horticulture and landscape.
0: Sounds like then a mixture start- between uh, Better Homes and Gardens and uh, and Indiana Jones.
1: It was, well, it was a bit interesting that it, it actually took me into mining, believe it or not, uh, by right. doing extra work, being a young, a young guy who wanted to to make money and work extra days on the weekends and things. I, I, I would take on contracts for, for, for different landscape jobs. And then, um, that led, yeah, working into a, a company that had laboratories and, and I would cover for people who blew shifts or do night shifts to earn extra money there. And, um, through gaining knowledge in that, believe it or not, took, took, took me overseas and then setting up laboratories in, uh, in, in Europe, wow. mineral laboratories, uh, you know, being and- I mean, Western Australia, being a strong mining background. So we were respected through that. But I kept doing the, 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 the landscape, the horticulture, but I was, as I say, I did that also. And then, you know, I, I was invited to go to, to France, actually, where I was based in a place called Carcassonne. So I went over there and we were based there, set up a laboratory there, but also setting up labs in other countries.
0: Wow, how's your French these days? A uh, bit poor, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a bit <laughs> it's in there somewhere. It's it's, it's in there, but uh, I don't get to use it
0: too often. It begs the question: uh, You're a buyer's agent today. Talk us through that transition. Is, has that sort of been uh, always a bit of a passion behind the scenes? Were you doing that in parallel throughout the rest of your career?
1: Property was all, has, has been a. A thing in my background I sort of avoided it Or my I'm the youngest of four four siblings two older brothers and a sister and um, they all went into property and were all in sales and I sort of avoided it because they were all doing it perhaps uh, it was something in our family though we'd, we'd my parents were actively buying and selling and renovating property all of our lives um, my early memories we, we were born in born in Wales I was and came to Australia uh, by a ship 10 pound migrant family came into Sydney. We ultimately went up to Brisbane. Um, and in all of those times, you know, it was always looking at homes, buying property, home opens on the weekend, uh, spec homes, or it, that was just our life was always homes. And then we ultimately went to Western Australia. So we moved an awful lot. My parents were always buying and selling. I think that's partly why I didn't have a lot of posters on the wall because we were always looking at doing a place up and then moving on <laughs> to the next one. So I probably wasn't allowed yeah. to do it. <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> very practical.
0: This... There's no hint of a Welsh accent. You've obviously you've you've shed that sort of background.
1: Well, mate, they have to hate it, don't they? I? I can't <laughs> they all the time? Can I? <laughs> the,
0: the trick around Newcastle is anyone any Welsh bloke that says Swansea, that really tricks them up.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's lovely to find all the Welsh names in the area of Swansea. So, so yeah, wonderful names, and it, and it is touching. I often I often think that people don't realise when they. Uh, Look at the number plates at traffic lights. It says New South Wales and really that connection to South Wales. And uh, I ask people about it and people say they never even thought of it. But I, I come from the original South Wales.
0: There you go. There, there you go. Now, getting to, to Newcastle, which we just referenced, obviously that's where you operate your business and presumably purchase properties for, for your clients. Newcastle seems to follow Sydney with a bit of a lag effect, certainly with the property market itself. But I'm wondering whether there is a lag effect with sort of the – adoption of buyers agents they seem to be everywhere in Sydney especially in the eastern suburbs but Newcastle perhaps not adopting BAs as quickly are are buyers agents more common in Newcastle now than they were a few years ago?
1: Absolutely more common than they were a few years ago a few years ago people wouldn't know what a buyers agent was uh, and very wary about using a buyers agent thinking it's only the top end of the market use buyers agents uh, now now currently in this, as we speak i think there's more buyers agent than there are properties listed for sale
0: <laughs> and that uh, that Seems obviously causes some some yeah. challenges for yourself with with business i presume but Also, uh, unlevels the playing field if people are attending auctions and they're they're going against buyers' agents, especially if they're seasoned professionals, right? Is that something that you're witnessing a little bit more? You're getting these these BAs lining up at auction and psyching each other out?
1: There's a a bit of that, but I, I think a lot of the older school people here, we all get along pretty well and we don't come up against each other as often as we may think we might. But um, yep. some of the new ones coming in, I don't know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of new buyers agents coming, whether they're ex- the experience they have in the industry or just like it's a good industry to get into and it's growing, it, it will have some effects on us, of course. Uh, yep. I don't know if the supply in Newcastle for people using a buyers agent will be matched by the amount of people that are joining, joining the industry. Yep. Um, and some, of, some of, sorry, I'm going off topic a little bit there, but some of the people that are coming in maybe aren't going to bring the experience which may impact in a negative way on the industry that is growing. Yeah, but that's, that's I think reality. That, go
0: on. Sorry. Yeah, that that's obviously a, a problem for the, the greater property industry as well. Uh, obviously, there's there's a lot of movements at uh, state and national level to to recognise uh, real estate, for example, as a profession and and have it outside of the fair trading regulations, and, uh, a little bit more focus on it. So, yeah, let let's hope that. Um, there are a few more barriers to, to making sure that people have got the experience to do that just in the interest of the client, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and for the most part, I think a lot of people come in something with good intentions and most people do have good intentions. So we hope for that. And if we just work all together to yeah, improve the professionalism of the industry as a whole uh, onwards and upwards
0: beautiful now now sticking with newcastle for your investor clients are there certain suburbs within newcastle that you purchase or do you do you go further around australia as well
1: we we've started buying in uh, south australia as well in adelaide specifically mm-hmm. Adelaide, I won't say the whole of south australia uh, because we had a few repeat clients and clients in, interested in diversifying over there uh, so that yeah we, we we now purchase over there with with help of local buyers agents there mm-hmm uh, working together, which is something that we've done in the past, and works quite well back and forth in and out of Sydney, from people wanting to buy down in Sydney from Newcastle, and likewise people in Sydney wanting to buy in Newcastle. Yep. But yeah, with, so we do. With... We, we do also identify suburbs in and around Newcastle. Absolutely.
0: I mentioned earlier, believing sort of the Newcastle market tends to follow what's happened in Sydney with a bit of a sort of a six month lag or something like that. Is that, is that just a, an anecdotal observation I've made in error? Or do you think that that is a bit of the case that if, if Sydney has a really good six months, then Newcastle's likely to follow with the capital growth in its market?
1: Yes, I agree. I, I would say six to nine months is a good figure, but it's probably compressed a little bit, and we're a little bit closer to what's happening in Sydney at the moment. Partly because Newcastle's been discovered more, so Yep. more in the focus, and of, co- of course, when you know, the, the tail end of the, the, the large price increases in Sydney make us more affordable here, so that that maybe's compressed that that lag time a little bit. So I think I was going
0: to. I was going to ask you about affordability. Is is there a point at which sort of people in Sydney think, look, the median price in the suburb I'm looking at is just far too much and then people will decide to move to places like Wollongong or the Central Coast or Newcastle and, and commute? Or is it just, a, I guess, a sense of, well, we could buy an investment property for 1.2 or we can buy one for 600 in Newcastle and save some cash or buy two and diversify? What do you think it is?
1: Certainly, lifestyle is a great, great job for people who want to ultimately come this way. You know, talking of those people, and you know they 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 can. You know, you can buy. You know, you're buying 750 a great family home that's close to beaches. You know, all the all the lifestyle benefits Newcastle has, as opposed to you know the, the commute in Sydney. But you but you know, putting on that yes, the commute commute down to Sydney. But people are doing it. There's a lot of people looking to you know buying up here, and they're saying an investment property for five years which will ultimately become their family home not not pure investment really and sort of purchase with a different mindset but yeah but i get a lot of inquiry that way so people are wanting to do that
0: can you give us a bit of a i guess a newcastle geography lesson for anyone that's not familiar with the area i.e how far from sydney and what are some of the main areas around the city and the lake that people might want to know if they're looking to invest in newcastle
1: yeah sure so Newcastle's got a population of about 150,000 in the in the city area, the city suburbs. In total, the LGA 325,000 something like that. And then you've also got Lake Macquarie, which is of course just to the south of the, the la- very large lake, and all the uh, population, all the little centres around there. The, the main one being Toronto. Uh, they've got a population of 205,000, I think thereabouts. Wow. And then yeah, and then Port Stevens to the north. And I, I can't quite give you the population there off the top of my head, but. Um, so they're all great areas, all with all very different, all offering fabulous lifestyle opportunities and great opportunities for people to you know, downsize, retire and move to into the future. I think that's where the you know, Newcastle is really going to accelerate over the next few years. But um, anyway, there, there are suburbs around, um, beachside suburb, Merriweather was a very surfy, uh, where young people rented houses and lived there as youngsters. And now it's, you know, that you're paying $5 million up to for, for, for properties down there to be by one of the main beaches. So that's a very desirable area. Living in the city, of course, all the apartments have come into the city, but we're moving the city centre to towards the west to, to expand space and to incorporate other suburbs into that. Uh, Broad Meadow, Beaumont Street, we've got Hamilton there, those areas are, and, and what's in Mayfield are all being, going to be absorbed into really inner city areas. Yeah, already are. Of course they are, but they're going to be absorbed more into the centre, so there's a huge amount of, Interest and activity going around in those areas, the gentrification, all that that comes with it.
0: Yeah, and and I guess Newcastle's sort of slowly shaking off that image of the of the coal port, and that's there's been quite a lot of gentrification, and with the uni uh, moving into the city and that sort of thing, it's changed a lot in the last little while.
1: Sure has. Sure we, we, We're still coal, of course. We've still got coal here. Well, I don't know if I'll see the day, but maybe we will get to see the day when. Our, you know, cold Port on the North Shore will turn into the North Shore and I'll start seeing high rises go up there maybe one day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. There's a lot of talk about renewables post the bushfires and the then floods and that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to see. I think Newcastle's probably going to be one of the slower places to transition with, with obviously the mining impact there. Compared to Sydney, what are, what are property prices like? Uh, you know, what's the – you know, in Sydney there's a, a big – uh, I guess, income to asset price ratio. How does that compare to Newcastle? And if we're looking at, you might come up with a better example to compare, but let's say a three-bedroom townhouse in one of the, the inner city Newcastle suburbs, what would that be valued to compared to something in, say, Surrey Hills in Sydney? Uh,
1: if I'm Comparing highly desir- those two suburbs, I pick one in Newcastle, Cooks Hill being a very desirable area. Uh, yep. You could, you know, you'd buy a nice property there for a million dollars. So first mm-hmm. of all, I'd say Newcastle, people have to understand, Newcastle isn't a cheap place to buy anymore. People they think they're going to come to Newcastle and buy something for peanuts. That isn't the case. It's it's moved like Sydney moved, but it's still, you know, in comparison, yes, you know, what are you paying in Surrey Hills, 1.7, you know, they're to thereabouts. Yep. And, um, you know, you're around about a million dollars in Cooks Hill, which is a comparable yep. suburb. So what is that? 20th of your income ratio to a 12th or something like that
0: yeah yeah okay yeah so i mean it's it's considerably cheaper still but it's not we're not talking about like prices in hobart or well maybe even a better example bathurst or something like that
1: yeah and i think some people still have the impression they're going to come to newcastle and you know with 1.52 million dollars you can buy anything well that's just not the case
0: what do you think uh, the values in Newcastle are tied to? is it is mining a big driver, like is the coal price a big reason why properties at uh, prices would go up and down, or is it a bit more diversified than that to cover those sort of mining up and downs like Perth has really struggled to do yeah we
1: Newcastle had to reinvent itself it did with. You know, the, the loss of BHP, everyone talks of that. But we st- yes, we're very much attached to mining, but there is also an awful lot that goes on. I think other industries are actually bigger. The, the hospital sector is, is, is really quite huge. We've got some great hospitals and that's, and also another one in the Marta, um, sorry, in Maitland Hospital out there. So there's some big growth in those areas and that drives a lot of people. And then, of course, the education with the Newcastle University is doing some wonderful things. Coming into the city and bringing more in, so it has found other ways. That there is a lot of diversification here. Of course, you know not only the coal that goes out through the port. There are other commodities that come in and out through the port and all that brings. But if you put onto it the Hunter Valley, the tourism that happens there, there, there is so much, and there's some really a great amount of innovation going on with people here with great ideas and some great innovators based in Newcastle doing some wonderful things with renewable energy, renewable products, all of that.
0: It's um, I struggle not to sort of somehow reference these conversations back to Shiraz, but uh, Hunter Valley Shiraz, check that out. Uh, and Semyon as well, as a, if you're into the white, uh, just, just a little tip for any of the alcoholic listeners there. Um, Rich, with the CBD and the gentrification there, there's been a lot of cranes in the skyline in Newcastle in the last sort of while, a lot of units coming on. There's a couple of big developers in town. How do you think that's changing the face of the CBD or, or, or let's say the Newcastle inner city? And do you think there's an oversupply or there is quite a lot of demand for that sort of accommodation and the balance is right?
1: There is a demand with a lot of people downsizing to come in, but of course investors have picked up those places as well. I don't think the oversupply is, is as quite as drastic as maybe people would see it in Sydney and Melbourne. Um There is a little bit of it, but I think we'll absorb that quite quickly because there is a a huge desire from locals to pick up an investment or, as I say, to downsize into apartments into the city because it offers such a great lifestyle.
0: Uh, Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see... I guess what happens in the next little while, there's been a lot of developments that have gone up and I think have sold relatively well. Is there there much in the pipeline that you see happening or will it be a bit of a wait and see while the stock is taken up, do you think?
1: Yeah, it will be a bit of a wait and see. There are some developments that did get put on hold, some large ones that didn't get taken up and for different reasons they've they've gone on hold. So that's probably the effect of that. Uh, but with things like the university you mentioned before bringing the it's you know, it's phase two of the campus coming into the city, uh, those things will bring more students maybe out of those suburbs, you know, out of Callaghan, closer to the university. Yep. And, you know, it is a young person, you know, there's 32% of the population here is you know, young people, unmarried young people, students and so forth. So it's quite, quite, quite large. That is a big chunk. Yeah. There's Getting- the figures that I read. It's quite surprising.
0: Getting back to your trade craft, Richard, The I've heard a, a couple of stories recently about buyer's agents nerding out on something called Gavel Online, where you're watching recorded auctions. I had a look at that site and obviously you need a little bit of a login, but I've heard that uh, you guys like to, to get involved in that sort of stuff. If you're not attending enough in your, in your normal day-to-day, you're, you're looking at these and trying to pick the pick this the skills of identifying who the bidders are and who's going to win you're you're the national secretary of reba the real estate buyers agents association of australia and i know that professional development's a big focus i'm just interested in how you guys sort of sharpen your skills what sort of training do you guys go through that makes you sort of a little bit dangerous when you're out there negotiating and working for your clients
1: yeah i don't log into gavel and watch online auctions although i do love to attend a lot of live auctions uh, <laughs> right yes so, so i'll make that but I'll, I'll confess i do log in and watch the the council live stream um development application pod you know that they put out when they have their de- development meetings so i do right so that probably class me as being quite nerdy to sit down and watch that for a couple of hours <laughs> uh, but yeah not the gavel. uh hone the craft Attending a lot, putting a lot of thought into it, really, know, you know, knowing the market, knowing the, knowing the, the vendors, knowing the, the agents, that's a really you know, big part of what goes on. Being focused in what you're going to do at an auction, having your markers clearly laid out as to where, you know, what you want to hit when you're purchasing. I have been known to practice auctions, but you know, running auctions because, I, you, know, you know, I studied auctioneering things to do that as part of, I guess, a lot of buyers I just might do that as well, be accredited auctioneers, uh, only to, to have a, an insight on the process as well. Yep. But, um, yes, yeah, spend a lot of time thinking about it uh, by being focused on what you want to achieve out of it, really.
0: You mentioned something that sort of my ears pricked up for, and that was setting the markers that you want to hit. What does that mean exactly? If if well we, if you can sort of get a handle
1: on how many people how many people are going to bid and where the, where the bids are moving and what direction they're going and if they're moving in ten thousand fifty thousand dollar amounts you want to know that if it continues at that with sort of maybe three bidders where it's going to be because I don't want to miss out on the on on my highest price for my client I want yep. I want that bid so I have to make sure that I I you know try and manipulate everything to get to so I'm going to arrive at that bid or I know that where it's coming. I'm the person that's going to get that or I'm not going to fall short and and just keep it in your mind so you know that you're not going to miss that bit I certainly don't want to miss that bit I don't want to be bidding above where I've been approved to bid so keep an eye So that requires
0: people. you you've got to have pretty pretty quick mathematical calculations in your head right because i'm guessing let's say someone says rich you know i want you to buy this house and my budget's 955 i've heard buyers agents say don't give me a round number because things tend to end on that and you don't want to lose by a dollar so let's say 956 if we're at 900 and we're going in 10 grand in increments you want to make sure that at some point you're intervening and changing it to fives and ones so that things are landing in the right spot is that am i on the right track yes yes
1: yes so and i'll go through that and i'll write that out before i go so i know that if you know the bids are moving there and it's not going to say it's going to happen that way and of course most of the time maybe it won't but you you certainly know that if it's there Okay, this is my response to that. Or how I may respond to that, depending on who's bidding and how many bids are there. So it's all it's it's, it's on the fly, but at least you're researching that and you've got that in your mind.
0: So you is that a hard to skill it. to learn?
1: To say you've learned it, you know, it, it, every time is different, and whether you get it, you know, you want to get it right every time. If you put time into it, you'll you, you get your head around it and so you're more comfortable. I think a big advantage of the buyer's agent, we, we are, you know, the emotion isn't there. So you know, you're taking that away. So performance isn't affected by emotion.
0: Yep. Cool. So if you're sort of thinking, I really want this place and little Timmy's already picked out the bedroom, that sort of impedes your ability to do these quick mathematical calculations. If you're, maybe your pregnant wife is standing there looking at you thinking, you know, don't mess this up.
1: Absolutely. That conversation has yeah. already happened with, with ourselves and the client the day before. So we we, we know exactly, you know, what, what happens, where we're going to be. And it's often, It's unusual when you sit you know, at an auction, you see people, che- you know, it seems like they're strategizing at the last minute as things are unfolding. You think, well, you, you know, you really would have wanted to sort of second guess that the day before and know where you're going into before it happens. You know, the what if scenarios and if this happens, what am I going to respond to? As I say, with the, my idea, what I call the markers anyway, of, you know, yep. Adjusting the bids accordingly. If I know somebody hits that, it's just a tr- just in the back of my mind to have it there that if somebody bids nine thirty, okay. If we if we carried on at that, we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna I'm, I'm okay here. Doesn't say it's going to happen that way, but it's nice to think about it anyway. So it's just a little, little thing that I go through just to try and be
0: sure. Having seen a couple of buyers agents such as yourself at auction, I would certainly recommend that the value that a buyers agent brings in that situation is is much more than the cost. But is it something that someone could learn to to do themselves adequately? Could they practice? Would they? Would you give any tips for someone to to run through the hypotheticals of what could happen and to be able to try and control the the narrative as best they can if they're bidding at auction?
1: Be be prepared and and go to attend as many auctions as you can. Yep. Just, yeah. So the more you see them, you know, you see different things pop up. Last weekend I saw you know some different things pop up at one auction I attended. You don't always see, and it's it's it's, it's just great for that. You're just more comfortable because you've been to so many. You know what's you know how they unfold, what happens, yep. and and reading the crowd, you know, watching people. Of course, you know you get a handle of what other people are doing and why they may be doing it. I guess yep. there's a lot of things, and whether we you know buyers agents will 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 tell all, the tell all, <laughs> all expose of how we. Yeah. How we go about it to give ourselves an advantage is probably not the greatest thing to do. But it's, it's a combination of a lot of small things, really. So by getting them all right and being prepared and thinking about them and, and repetition is the thing that helps with that. So the, the sheer fact that we attend a lot and we do it often gives us the advantage over other people, I think. So, um, yes, you could do that skill, but you're going to invest time
0: and effort into it. Yeah, you're never going to be able to beat a pro that does it day in, day out, I suppose. And I don't want to ask you too many of your secret herbs and spices, no, but are, are, are auctions prevalent in Newcastle as they are in places like Sydney and Melbourne? As far as I understand, the, the percentage of auctions would be quite a bit lower.
1: It, it, it is at the moment. It, you know, when the market was flying, auctions did become very prevalent. It became you know as popular as a means to sell as, as what was happening in Sydney. But when the market turned, so did the method of sale. We went back to private treaty quite a bit here. Um, that's changing again. People are more confident, the agents are more confident to go back to auction. A, a lot still did, but the percentage did certainly come come away where they thought, you know, perhaps the buyers aren't there. So we, you know, we don't want to turn in a property. So they were running with private treaty because time on market was extending out a little bit longer and, and some of the properties weren't, you know, a number of properties weren't selling at at auction, not because they weren't good properties, it's just that there was a bit of a hold on, wasn't
0: there really? Yeah, I guess you'd need a bit of competition and demand to be able to run an auction. Otherwise it just kind of looks a bit sad, I suppose. With those markers that we talked about with buying at auction, are there principles with that that help you with negotiation as well? For example, if you know what your budget is as a purchaser, should that sort of inform the the bids and the offers that you make in that negotiation process to try and, I guess, land in an area where you're comfortable or try and manipulate it so you're not missing out?
1: We're talking about negotiating on a private treaty now, you say?
0: Yeah, rather than an auction, if you're just sort of submitting an offer to the agent, do you still have to have that same idea about, well, this is my budget and if if we're going back and forth with the vendor in these increments, then maybe we need to sort of slow it down or speed it up, what have you? Is it a similar sort of concept or is it a completely different thing?
1: Similar in the sense that we've got to know the numbers and say, well, look, you know, if we make this offer, they, you know, they, they may well counter with this, that or the other. But it is a lot of hypothetical, I must say. And and, and realistically, the negotiation of like that, every every matter is different. Mm. with different agents, different vendors, different motivations, a different property, and, and maybe the things that we've identified in the property will have a bearing. So, yeah, yes, we have an idea of where we're going and what may happen, but it is a bit hypothetical. So, you know, we don't... I don't really say I need those markers in order to to achieve this particular outcome. It's more the whole overall negotiation of what we can offer and you know it could be some of the conditions around that that you know a longer settlement or access to a deposit those sorts of things can strengthen our offer and be more valuable than you know an extra five or ten thousand dollars or something like you know
0: yeah, sure now. I've learned a fair bit about buyers agents in the last little while and I know that there are a lot of services that are offered outside of the full service, i.e. I want you to buy an investment property sort of from start to, to finish, such as bidding at auction just on its own or, or doing the research and, and preparation, making sure people aren't overpaying and vendor advocacy and all sorts of things like that. Can you run us through what's available from a service point of view for buyers agents and you can, you know, feel free to use yourself as an example. Yeah, we're probably
1: limited. We don't do uh, vendor advocacy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some, some, and buyers agents will do property management also. So we don't do that. So they're, you know, really the two more outliers than the traditional ones that people would expect. And that is, you know, maybe bid at auction, negotiate only search and negotiate. It's pretty much that, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. You know, the REBA element of it is we 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 wanna keep core to that that we're we're not finding people are going into areas where they're involved in any selling selling or with developers. That's core to our values there.
0: And apart from you being a better bidder at auction, a better negotiator by, negotiated by virtue of it being your job, your profession, your day-to-day, what you focus your efforts on. Are there other advantages to hiring a, buyer, a buyer's agent? One that sort of springs to mind we hear a lot about is, is the off-market transactions or the relationships that you have with agents. Could you sort of say that that, that gives you an extra advantage outside of just the skills of your tradecraft?
1: absolutely, it does. It's um, every property is sold by a, a person. It's marketed by a person. Um, people, are, you know, people making offers. So really, it's people. And you know, we're in the market dealing with those those people all the time. The the, the sellers, the the agents. So you you know you know how, it's it's used to how to deal with people in certain circ- you know those circumstances of negotiation and looking. And the sheer yep. fact that you know you see people who are out there all the time looking at properties. Agents understand it They, you know, they're coming to us saying, you know, where, where do you think the price is on this one? How do you think this is going? And, you know, then you, you might see the, <laughs> it might be adjusted to to reflect what you said the day before, or, you know, it's nice when it comes back and you realise that the, the the sole price is the price that you'd mentioned to them, you know, a few weeks prior sort of thing. Um, but we're in it all the time and you can't beat that really by knowing all the people who are involved around the property. People pick up the phone for us. They, they, they know we're available. I mean, I'm there expecting the call and ready to how to respond to that call that I'm expecting to receive, whereas somebody who isn't, you know, is doing it for themselves, they've got to find a way to make time within their, their normal profession to answer that call or to make that call. Well, you know, we plan for it and we're expecting it and we, you know, we've got the next step in mind and that's that's what we're doing. That's how our day is planned around that. I guess
0: the agents the agents know that you're not tire kickers as well, right? Because if you're calling them about a property, chances are you've got a written acceptance from your client who's going to be pre-approved. So you, you might not be buying what they're selling, but you are buying something and you are buying it soon. So does that sort of change the way that they communicate to you as well mm-hmm. outside of just being a professional?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They know we're bringing qualified buyers to them. Um, so we have got somebody there who's ready to go that's contactable that has all their ducks in a row uh and and you know there's they've got somebody that they can reach out to and to negotiate and understand what the process is and 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 not going to you know play silly sort of games with them or have have unwarranted or unrealistic expectations of what property is and what selling agents are as well there's a lot of the time you know i think a lot of buyers agents get business because people say that they're sick of talking to selling agents but I think a lot of the public's impression of what a selling agent is and what they do is 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 a, mis, a misconception, really. And a lot of the, people, the things that people complain about, they don't really understand why the agent behaves the way they behave. Yes, um, you know, they're there representing their vendor, and 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 that's what they're doing. You know, when 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 twenty groups come through a home open, it's up to that agent to identify who are the genuine people who are ready to purchase and have interest in that property so if they ask some pointed questions around your budget or where you're at and what you're doing it's because they're, they're there trying to sell that property in 20 you know 20 minutes they need to identify who the people are um,
0: yeah i guess they want to focus all of their efforts on what's going to bear the most fruit and if you're not pre-approved or you're just tire kicking they need to move on i guess it seems a bit impersonal but their job is is for the vendor whereas you're obviously tipping the scales there, working for the potential purchaser, and I think it's important never to forget that if you're dealing with the agent that's selling the property, they're not on your team, are they?
1: No, no, absolutely, they're not. <laughs> and they're not. They might not necessarily be trying to being rude, but they're not. You know, they don't know your circumstances, and they have to. You know, they have to try and accelerate the process to synthesize who's, you know, as you said, who's ready to go and who isn't. Whereas, you know, the buyer's agent's able to have that conversation in a bit more relaxed environment with their client. And then you know go off and have that discussion with the agent so yeah, it takes that away from it but as i say i stick up for the agents a little bit as to what they do it's it's, it's not a nice process people aren't comfortable without talking about where their budget are with somebody that they don't know in, in a busy environment where there may be other 20 other groups there or something like that so again yeah. you know that's another great reason for a buyer's agent because you save yourself all of that it's not necessarily the agents are being rude it's just the environment that you're thrown in the questions that may get
0: asked It is a good point. It's hard to sort of have some of those questions without a rapport. I mean, you meet someone for the first time, and they always sort of say, "What do you do?" They never say, "You know, what was your taxable income last year?" (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it would be a a little bit awkward. I, I had a private conversation with a buyer's agent in Sydney, and we were talking about. Them uh, talking to sales agents and saying, "Look, I'm a buyer's agent. I'm representing a client. I, I'm, I'm not here to sort of play games. You're, you're selling it for x amount. I'm not prepared to pay that. What would we need to be talking to put the deal together?" And they said, "Every now and then, every now and then. I don't want to whack agents too hard, but every now and then they'll come back with a figure." That could get the property sold that astounds the buyer's agent on the low side i e they would be prepared to pay more, but I guess the agents wanting to wrap up that sale it's a it's a it sounds like a bit of a poor indictment on agents, but is that something that happens or is it just a nature of the campaign is is getting old and the agents aren't getting paid if they're not selling it? Is there any sort of conflict there you think?
1: Oh, look, I'm not going to say that doesn't happen, but I don't think it's the norm. Yeah, you know the agents are out there trying to do the right thing because they need to have their reputation intact to to go ahead. Mm. It, it, it may be that proper you know the, the motivation of the vendor is is somewhat different to as they're letting on. They don't want to tell all the all the personal information about somebody selling the home and what's going on in their life. so that may have changed or you know taken a turn for the worst, so that you know suddenly the price is going to become lower. But it it may well happen. I I don't think there's too many. You know, you see too many properties that you think, gee, that went for you know a good hundred thousand dollars less than it should have. Yeah. That, that doesn't happen as often as people like to think. And you know, you've got to negotiate a fair and reasonable price in the market that you're in. Yes, there are those ones that you go, Phew, you know, tomorrow we could you know turn that over tomorrow and it would sell for a you know hundred hundred and fifty plus more. But that's that's few and far between. Most yep. most properties find that they're. they're, they're the market price
0: fair enough and it sounds like i'm trying to drag you into scandal and the things are getting a bit too today tonight so we'll <laughs> we'll change we'll change direction rich what about uh, getting back to newcastle what what's happening and what's in the pipeline for newcastle that you think's going to have an impact on property values either for the positive or the negative
1: Po- the positive with the cities moving to the west is giving more space. We, you know, being on the peninsula, there was a limited amount of property here, and if that's the centre of the city, that's all you know, struggled to grow. So by moving a little bit back off the peninsula, taking it towards Wickham and Hamilton, there's the opportunity for the city to really grow and radiate around. Um, the the mayor and the, and and the local council have the impression and the idea that what they're trying to do is build little suburban centres as well and improve on them and, and put some density in those areas as well. So there's good growth and um, livability is improved. You know, again, the gentrification is, and we, we keep saying if that really is happening in all the suburbs as it radiates out, Newcastle's very eclectic, uh, the negatives, the light rail did cause some disruption here, but that's, you know, we're, we're sort of past that now, the light rail's in and active. So, you know, as that took some, some people out of the city and not wanting to come in and maybe change that, it's now, going, you know, becoming a positive and the hunter street mall is being uh there's a lot of well as you probably know the david jones building there another part stage one two and three is being redone along the mall so that's a lot of the, a lot of the shop fronts there uh, had to move out and move further up hunter street while they redevelop but that redevelopment process right along the, the, the main mall of the hunter street will will be quite vibrant when that's all done so that'll be something quite special
0: that being said, are there any particular pockets that you see having really solid growth potential? is are the, are those pockets around those those bits of gentrification?
1: Yeah, there are Tice Hill, Ty, uh, Wickham great areas, but it, it'll also be broad meadow, but again, you can still go out into other suburbs and expect that you'll see growth because you know Mayfield I think is a great always a great area. I don't think we're going to be jumping out of our skim with huge growth over the next few years but there'll be steady growth and then there will, you know, there will be periods, of course, where it will accelerate and jump at at times. But as I say, being an eclectic area, very diverse from one street to the next and, you know, houses within one street, you've really got to drill down and pick the actual properties and why those, you know, that end of the street or that particular house is good and that one's not good. There's a lot of that in Newcastle. It could be flood zones, it could be um, mining issues, or it could be who actually lives in the street and what's there, or old gasworks. There's a there's a lot of different reasons why you have to do your homework around purchasing in Newcastle.
0: Yeah, and from a macro level, am I reading you right in sort of saying you're seeing some growth in the next little while, but you're not expecting double digits or or greater? Can you give us some um, I know people like yourself hate these crystal ball <laughs> questions, yeah, the world. I I'm going to have to ask you because people people want to know.
1: Yeah. Look, I think there I think there generally will be. I, Newcastle's definitely got a rosy future. You know, there's a lot of great things happening here. It's it's been discovered by the people of Sydney, uh, maybe not fully discovered yet, and it is still transitioning not not from away from the BHP thing or coal. Uh it's just awakening and the first stage of all the development that's going on in and around that in the city. But it's, it's, it has a great culture in terms of the community and a lot of great things that happen around here in terms of the markets. The location's fabulous in terms of, you know, a harbour beachfront city. You know, you, you, you get people walking through the city in their, in their bikinis and bathers because we are right on the beach. It's a very relaxed and wonderful place and that is going to drive a lot of growth into the future. You, know, you team that with the university coming in and adding all that life to it. Uh, people opting to move up here as re- retirees. It's just a pos- positive picture but to, to to put a figure on it. Yeah, there'll be some there'll be some double digit growth in time, but I'm I'm not gonna say it's gonna happen in the next two years.
0: Beautiful. You heard it here first, ladies and gents. We'll we'll circle back and give right. you a report card in a couple of years, Rich. The local um,
1: school, primary school's probably got a different view. Ask them what they want, they're probably gonna be more accurate.
0: So Rich, you mentioned a couple of little nuances about the Newcastle market. For, for investors that are looking at Newcastle either from afar or even as locals, what do they need to know about Greater Newcastle to make the best possible investment decisions?
1: Yeah, know, know the history of Newcastle. Some of it's low-lying land. Some of it has uh, undermined with subsidence issues. And then there's other you know, more local factors can come into play. Uh, generally better yields have come around the university because the housing is cheaper and there's demand for rentals with students there. So it's offered the best yields. Sometimes the units, out, units in the city outperform houses um, and that swings a little bit and goes backwards, but it's kind of a bit the reverse of what happens sometimes in Sydney. But, um, you can get in close to the city. You can still buy close into the city in some suburbs that are still a bit sleeper. And there's going to be good movement and activity there. Absolutely,
0: beautiful, Rich. If people are wanting to have a chat to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Pick up the phone and give me a call. I know you're happy to take a call wherever I can. If I'm available, I'll, I'll speak to anybody and everybody, um, or drop me an email. It'd be wonderful rich at fpf.net.au.
0: Beautiful, and that's nice and easy. So, Fortune Property Finder—that's the business name now. Rich, if there's one piece of advice that you can impart to investors, I know this is potentially a tricky one, what would it be?
1: Get a good team and um, sometimes spending money, well, people think by not spending money, they're saving money. Sometimes you've got to spend money to to actually make money and to secure something better.
0: I think that's great advice because the numbers are still telling us that the average investor buys one property. And I think a lot of that's because we're getting the first one wrong. So having a good team and having some good advice behind you, like someone as yourself as an expert in the particular market you might be looking to invest in, you can't go wrong. So uh, that's a beauty, Rich. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. Mike, there was one little gem that i didn't get to tell you and probably, oh yes please probably, probably all the interesting things around my, my, my property history and things. my father was a quantity surveyor
0: ah, there I you go man after that. my own heart yeah that's right so there's a great
1: great grounding there but yeah another little thing that i have to say is um to if you want to spot the top of the market maybe when vacancy rates hit a five year low that's yep yeah that's that's maybe an indicator it's something i read many years ago sort of follow that and if, if you can get good vacancy rate data but you know if it hits a five-year low then maybe the market's going to take a turn down so figure Beautiful. out how to pick the market going up but on a, on a down on a downward when it's reached the top that's that's a figure that i think is something to pay attention to
0: wow well i haven't heard that one before so i'd be interested to crunch some data on that one that's yeah. uh that's a great insight and uh mate i always knew you were a great guy but now it all makes sense with your old man being a quantity yeah, that's so that's nice. good to know yeah. well, thanks very much for for sharing your wisdom today rich
1: thanks mike absolute pleasure chatting to you thank you